We're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Jesus is our number one defender. Do you need an advocate? Do you need a defender? Jesus Christ is that. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. We honor God by standing when we read his word. So, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, as you know, Jesus is our number one defender, and the theme of 1 John is this, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you say that with me? That you may know that you have eternal life. That is the theme, and we want to get that down. Last week, we talked about walking in the light, and we see that the light is a metaphor for salvation or eternal life. Walking in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. Remember, God is a life giver. God is a life giver. In 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All mankind to be saved. Many people say they believe in Jesus and they profess faith. And John will give us tests. Many tests that we can do some self-examination. Now remember, these tests are not for you to test the person next to you. They are to test you. These are, this is introspection. Not for us to be going, I see you. Yeah, no, that's not what it is. It's introspection. So the first test we had last week was in verse 6 and 7. Are you living in unconfessed habitual sin? Is that the, the, the course of your life? Are you, is something consuming you that you just have given yourself over to? Really, that's what that's talking about. Each one of us will struggle with something. That's just the way the program is here on earth when we're, when we're living out this, this life here. and Our flesh is a, is a mortal enemy of us. And we will be struggling with something. But are you, have you given yourself over to something? Have you rationalized your sin? Have you discounted your sin? Have you really said that this really isn't sin? This, so many people are doing it, it can't possibly be sin. It's no big deal. You know, the government says it's okay that I can do it. So I, I justify it that way. The educational system says it. It must be okay. And my flesh screams out and says, yes, yes, pleasure me, and says it's okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Our spirit bears witness with God's spirit that what we're doing is wrong, that it is sin. John is not talking about sinless perfection by any stretch of the imagination. We all sin, and when we do sin, what is the number one thing that we do? We confess it. Yes, verse 10, 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So test number one, are you living in unconfessed habitual sin? Test number two was verse 8 and 9 last time. Do you say you have no sin or do you confess your sin? That is, that is the question. Do you say you have no sin? There's people that actually think they're living this thing out with sinless perfection. And First John is just right in their face saying, oh, no, if you say that, then you're a liar. The truth is not in you. There's nobody walking this thing out perfectly. We're all in a struggle, so confession is very important. Remember, the confession is written in the present tense, meaning we keep on confessing, keep on confessing, keep on confessing. And remember this, unconfessed sin is a ticket to joyless Christianity. You realize that? Unconfessed sin is a ticket to joyless Christianity. For people that do not confess their sin or do not own their sin and live with excuse after excuse after excuse, they are the ones that are living with this Christian thing isn't so hot. 
this Christian thing isn't really working out so much. It's not working for me. It is because you are not doing your part in the sanctification process. You're not working in conjunction with the Spirit of God to be separated unto God and walking this thing out truthfully. And then the third test we saw in verse 10 is when we say we haven't sinned, we are actually calling God a liar. We are actually calling God a liar. I'll read it to you. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What a dangerous place to be. His word is not in us. We make him out to be a liar. This is very serious, very serious. Since God is pure light, since God is pure holiness, in him is no darkness at all. And he calls something sin. When he calls it sin, guess what? It is sin. <laughs> it is sin. It doesn't matter what we say. It's sin. For you to say it's not sin, you're making God a liar. But there's good news. There's good news in all of this. God has made provision for all of humanity. Every single person on this earth is savable. We all have the sin curse that has been passed on to us, but each one of us are savable. The fact is this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The fact is that of this is the wages of sin is death. What you collect from sin is death. We'll see more of that later when I, when I get into James chapter 1. As a little sidelight. The wages of sin of death, oh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says? If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Sozo, saved. Salvation is granted by God to those who believe on Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. And that word belief, remember this, has in the word Commit yourself to, put your trust in, turn to and follow. It has implicit in that repentance. Repentance. Turning from my past life and turning towards Jesus. That's what repentance is. It also means to deliver from danger. One of the greatest things that people forget when you're thinking about salvation is Romans 5, 9. We're saved from the wrath of a holy God. It's very simple. We are in sin. All humanity are in sin. All of us are separated from God by sin. All of us have imputed sin, Adam's sin, imputed, credited to us. So we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a Savior. We need a Savior, and that would be Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those who reject God's Son, His greatest gift, He gives His Son to die for the sins of the world. If you reject that, you'll be under the wrath of God. That is not what God wants. He wants everyone to come into the family. But so many people stiff-arm him. So many people say, not now, Jesus, or I don't want you, Jesus, or I'll take my own way. And I've heard this many times. I'll take my chances because I'm a good person. I'm good enough. How sad. For all who believe on Jesus and receive the gift of salvation, eternal life, Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your defender. Jesus is the one who stands up for you. He is the one that stands up for you. This week, Jesus, our number one defender, that is who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And Holy Spirit, as always, I ask you to soften hearts, clear minds, take the veil off of our eyes, and help us to see the truth of your word and the truth of who you are. Teach us today the things that you want us to know. I ask you this, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Again, there's so many people think that they don't need an advocate. 
So many people that they think that they're good enough. So many people that think it's a, a scale of, of good and evil. And we're going to put up here a picture of a scale. And this is very classic, very typical. My good outweighs my evil. So, hey, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. But what does the scripture say? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's none who does good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. That's what the Bible says. There is no one good in the eyes of a holy God. Goodness is credited to us by Jesus Christ dying for us. His righteousness is imputed or credited to us. It is not anything that we do. We bring nothing to the table. It's everything that God does in salvation. He brings righteousness to us. The righteousness of Christ. It is not a scale. Now, when you're thinking about Jesus as our number one defender, who in the world doesn't need an advocate in this world today? Someone to come to your defense. Someone to say, I, I will help you when no one else will. This, this, is, this is very necessary. You know, you, you realize you need an advocate in kindergarten. When the dude is stealing your truck, you need an advocate. You need someone to come to your defense because he's a little bit bigger than you and he's taking your truck, that sort of thing. In middle school, you know this. In high school, you know this. If you go off to college, you know this. In the workplace, you know this. In our daily lives, we know this. There's adversaries, there's bullies, there's people that want to take advantage of you. They're all over the place. Now, I want to suggest to you, every one of us needs a defender, an advocate. Now, this is a true story that I'm going to tell you. It's a story about my life. And it's a story about when I was in the third grade and a guy was my advocate. See, it was recess. In the third grade, we went out for, we actually played. We went out for recess. And we went out for recess. The fourth grade bully was running around bullying people. He, I had avoided him for a period of time. But this was my day. So the fourth grade bully comes up to me, does his usual thing, verbal intimidation, tries to trip you, tries to push you, that sort of thing. And so immediately, what do you do when you're in the third grade and the bully comes up to you? What happens to your heart? Fight or flight, that's what's going on. And I'm thinking, how can I get away from this guy? Because I know I can run faster than him. I'm thinking about running away, and this is the truth. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my heart throb. My third grade heart throb. And she's witnessing this. And I went, oh no, I can't run. So I stood there in my panic, stiff state. And he started pushing, and I, so I thought I'd push him back. It's what we're supposed to do. You push me, I push you. And all of a sudden, we started swinging, and I realized something, that he was a big talker, but a slow swinger. <laughs> and I was so relieved. He caved in. He caved in. I won the fight. I was the hero of the third grade class. For the first time in my life, I was a hero. <laughs> but you know what happened? The bell rang. And I'm walking back to the class, and the fourth grade bully had a fifth grade brother. And the fifth grade brother's walking at me in this threatening manner. He's coming at me, and he says, you beat up my brother, now I'm going to beat up you. My heroism was short-lived. <laughs> I mean, from the 10-minute bell to going back to the class. And I'm getting ready to get pummeled, and a guy comes to my aid. And he says, if you bother Gorham, you're going to have to deal with me. And that guy just walked off. I went back to being a hero. <laughs> the only time in my life. All of us need an advocate, a defender. Jesus Christ. is. A, that was a true story. I might have got a little bit mixed up. I mean, that's been a long time ago. But that actually happened. 
Jesus is our advocate. But I want you to know this. Jesus is our advocate. He is not our accuser. So many times we feel like God is our accuser. Oh, no, he is not our accuser. Remember, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Jesus is indeed our number one defender. And in, in verse 1a, we see this. Jesus, our number one defender, he defends his children. I'm, John is the one speaking here, and he's talking about himself. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus does defend his children. My little children. Watch the, watch the passion. Watch the warmth in these words. My little children. These words I write to you so that you may not sin. I know if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's just the first part of that we want to focus on here. My little children. And again, that, that, that word children, if you look it up in the Strongs, it's, a, it, it's technon. It means born, birth, born again, birthed. And it's the warmth, my little children. John is speaking as an older man at the end of his life to every believer today. Remember, this isn't written to a specific church, First John. It's not written to a specific person. I think it's written to the church over the epochs of time. My little children. That's how I view God, how he deals with us. My little children. The warmth that is there. A term of endearment. Children is a term of endearment. And it's used eight times in First John. Eight times in First John. He says, these things I write to you. Why is John writing to the, this to the church today? That you may not sin. Isn't that the encouragement that God gives us? That you may not sin. He knows that we will. He said that previously, that we will fall and we will come short of the glory of God and that sort of thing. We will sin and that sort of thing. John does not view sin as something that, that, that should rule our lives, rule a believer's lives, but something that is a reality. Believers must realize we are not powerless against sin. I want to say that again. We, as believers, must realize we are not powerless against sin. That thing that has a vice grip on your life that you feel it can never be freed from, you can be freed from it. You can't do it in your own strength. It's God who will deliver you, but you must walk in concert with him to give you the strength to deliver you. I want to suggest something to you. Remember we said confession is good last week. Confession is good, but, but, but fulfilling our duty to confess sin does not give us license to sin. In other words, because I have 1 John 1, 9, doesn't give me the license to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do my thing, and then I'm going to come and confess. By the way, I'm going to come and confess and, and make it right. No, it doesn't. I want, to, I want you to think about this. This type of thinking is, is really not good thinking. Believers must realize when I choose to sin, I am not simply breaking a rule or the law of God, but in reality I'm committing spiritual adultery. This is serious. Spiritual adultery against God. I am choosing my idol over God. That is spiritual adultery. Remember the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, the second one, you shall not make yourself an idol. And, you shall, and the third one, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. God is priority preeminent. And when we choose, remember, sin is volitional. We are choosing to walk in sin. And that is spiritual adultery in the eyes of God. Now, when you think about sin and temptation, James gives us a great sequence to this. So if you would, turn to James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And while you're turning there, Please just hear these words. I want you to think about something. 
James is going to give us the sequence of event for temptation and sin. And we've been here before. This is a pretty common place that we've been to, but it's a good place to review it here. Satan has many methods. It says wiles in Ephesians chapter 6. Many strategies that he uses on human beings very successfully. And his goal is to make us fall and to become captive to sin, to not be free. Remember, anytime you're captive to anything, you're not free. And remember, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. Jesus come to set, set the prisoners free. But I want you to notice the sequence here. Chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. God is not temptable. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. Uh-oh, own it. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's what sin results in, death, separation, that feeling, that awful feeling of separation. Let's go through this just a little bit. First of all, you'll see here, the enticement to sin follows a predictable pattern. It follows a predictable pattern. Number one, the bait is dropped. In verse 14, that is when we're drawn away. Each one of us has a little bait. It's like the rat in the trap has that little cheese that's there, smells the cheese, and he wants that cheese. That's the bait. Satan knows exactly the bait you need. He's been watching you. He's been examining your life. The demonic realm has been watching you. They know your proclivities. They know your tendencies. They know what lures you. Drawn away. The bait is to lure you into a trap like a rat wants its cheese. Our flesh wants its sin. Secondly, that you have the inner depraved fleshly desire is enticed. That word is enticed means to catch with the bait, and it's your own desires. Remember, it's your own desires. It's not the person next to me made me do it. It isn't the TV program that made me do it. It isn't the Internet that made me do it. I wanted to do it. Your own desires are attracted to the bait, and you are being watched again. The demonic realm knows the bait to give you. Every person, every believer experiences this. This is not unique. Every one of us experiences this. And remember what God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when Cain brought the wrong sacrifice? God says, Cain, sin is knocking on your door, but you must master it. It was up to Cain to master the sin. God gave him the strength and the power to do it. He gives us the same strength and power through the Spirit of God that dwells within us. But you must master it. And I want you to, to suggest to you something. It's not sin at this point. This happens all the time. This process is happening all the time on a continuum. It's not sin at this point. So, how do we master sin? Well, God has given us tools. It, it, God has given us tools. Your tools are these. First of all, we've been through the spiritual warfare many times. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The battle starts in the mind. Something comes in the eye gate, something comes in the ear gate, it comes into the mind, and there the processing starts. There we have to start the battle. Secondly, we are told in Romans 8.13, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Our body wants certain things. 
Once we have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm dead. My old man is dead. I now have the responsibility and the ability to say no to my fleshly urges. And then Romans 6.13, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Have a beachhead in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, its evil desires. And all of this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's available to every believer that will walk in concert with the Holy Spirit. It's not something for the super-duper only Christian. It is for every one of us that we can say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Now, that is the truth. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13 will give us a little bit of insight into this. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. He says this, Paul says this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now, isn't that what we want? I want to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. And how do we do this? And increasing in the knowledge of God. Implicit on you being victorious is increasing in the knowledge of God. Absolutely a requisite. Verse 11, strengthened, when we do that, increase in knowledge of God, then we're strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And listen to this. We are victorious because he has delivered us. Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is the condition of every believer conveyed from the power of darkness into the kingdom of light. And now we have the responsibility to grow in our grace and the knowledge of God who will strengthen us to be able to walk this thing out properly and rightly. He has given us the strength. Victory comes, deliverance comes when we grow in the knowledge of God. Victory comes with growth and deliverance comes with growth. Both of these, there's this decision time. In the, de- in the temptation process, there's a decision time. But there is a point where it becomes sin. In verse 14, it goes on to say, it becomes sin when we yield to the temptation. When the, the desire has conceived and gives birth to sin, and I will suggest to you that sin has a grandchild, and that is death. That is death. If you sin, the end result is death. Use the tools that God gives you to escape, and you will not be caught in the trap of sin. Remember, sin always brings forth death, just like a rat in a trap. When they stick their nose into that cheese, what happens to it? They're dying, okay? That's what sin brings. Now, death can't, we know that death is, is, is not immediate in most cases, but it's that sense of separation that we have from God, isn't it? It's that sense that something's not right. The fellowship has been broken. Our relationship is still there. But our fellowship, that closeness to God, is broken by sin. Very important concept. Sin always results in death like Adam and Eve. Distance and separation from God. And remember what Adam and Eve did? They, there was cover-up and concealment. They tried to cover their sin with the leaves and that sort of thing. They tried to cover it. It's shame. It always brings shame and cover-up. Jesus is our number one defender. He is our advocate. 
He is the one that comes to our rescue. More on that in just a second. Verse 1b, Jesus, our number one defender, is our advocate. Is our advocate. Just read it to you one more time. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this is big. He is our defender. And again, if God is for us, who can be against us? God's rescue for every believer, every believer, if anyone sins, that if is a third-class condition. First-class condition is if and so. But this is a third-class. This is a potential. There's a potential. It doesn't say we're going to, but there's a potential that is there. God has given every believer an avenue of escape. How do I know that? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful that he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with a temptation will provide a way of escape or provide a way out or allow you to bear up under it. Now, if we fall into sin, and we will, remember, it need not be fatal. It need not be fatal because we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is this. It's a paracolito, and you've heard that word before. It means helper, comforter, the one who comes alongside to help you. It's a legal term. One who represents us speaks on our behalf. Jesus is the one who represents us and speaks on our behalf. Jesus is our paracolitos. He's our comforter. He is our helper. But also, remember, Jesus said, when he departed from earth in John chapter 14, that he would leave us another parakletos, one that was just like him. The word is allos, one of the same kind. It's in John chapter 14. Let me read this to you very quickly. He says this, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another allos of the same kind, a helper, a comforter. He may abide with you forever. Oh, he's the spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you. He men knows, he tabernacles within you. The Spirit of God dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. I will, the Spirit of God will come to you. I will come to you. Jesus, the Spirit of God, will come to us, both our advocates. William Barclay says this, he defines this, the advocate as this, one who lends his presence to his friends. And I will suggest to you that Jesus is our friend. He is our greatest friend. He is our greatest friend. In a military court-martial, the officer who defends the soldier under accusation is called the prisoner's friend. And that is what we have with Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. But there's more to it than this. I want to to, just kind of hear me for just a second here. Jesus is our advocate. And I want to suggest to you, he's not pleading for mercy before the throne of God. Does that kind of startle you? He's not pleading for mercy before the throne of God. You know what he's doing? He's stating a legal defense against Satan's charges. A legal defense. It goes something like this. I'll use myself as an example. Rick sinned, and the soul that sins, it shall die. That's what the scripture says. So we all have the death curse on us because all of us have sinned. That's the law. 
That's what the law says. Jesus says this, I died for Rick in his place. Rick's sin debt was paid in full. Remember the sixth cry from the cross? Jesus says, it is finished. To tell us die, it is finished. Paid in full. We use the word redemption. It just means the, the, the purchase price has been paid. The purchase price has been paid. Paid in full It was the blood of Christ. It's the reason that Paul says this in Romans 8.1. Jesus paid our price. Now God looks at me as pure and clean as he looks at his son. And that is why we are to understand this next verse, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Jesus, our Father in heaven, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, does not condemn us any longer. He convicts us when we sin. Okay, he convicts us when we sin. It's, it's to draw ourselves back to him, but there's no condemnation. None of this, you're no good. You're worthless. You'll never be any good. No, there's none of that. Jesus is our comforter in heaven. He is our defense in heaven. But the Holy Spirit is our advocate here on earth. He's our comforter on earth. He's the one who guides us into all truth on earth. Now, Charles Hodge said this about the Holy Spirit as our, he calls him the second advocate. The first advocate, Jesus, speaks to God for us. Oh, but the second advocate is speaking to us for us. Interesting thought. It is the job of the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, to argue with us in the court of our heart, to make the case about who we are in Christ and to show how rich life can be for those who are in Christ. And it is our job to listen. Our advocate is speaking to our hearts about who we are in Christ. How we can walk this out. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God is with us, who can be against us? We need to remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why do we need an advocate? Why do we need this pericolitos? Because we have an enemy of our souls that is merciless. Merciless. He will do whatever he can to distract you from God, to take you down some primrose path of lies and deception. That is what he does. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 gives us some insight into this, this enemy. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ has come. There is a time when Satan will be definitively dealt with and cast out into, be put into the pit and a thousand years later he put into the lake of fire. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, that's what he's doing, day and night accusing us, making a legal argument. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. You know what that is? That's salvation. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Oh, here the Satan is our accuser. You're no good. You're never going to make it. You keep going back to the cesspool. How crummy you are. You're never going to. And God says, there's no condemnation for my children who are in Christ Jesus. Come to me. Confess and be clean. Make yourself right before me. Confess it. Satan is our accuser. Jesus is our defender, our advocate. 
Over and over, Jesus Christ's righteousness defends us clean before Father. Remember, right now, Jesus' position in heaven is as our high priest, making intercession for us. When he first came, he came as a prophet, speaking the words of God to, to the people. He spoke Father's words to the people. Remember, he says, I don't speak my own words. I speak the words of my Father. He came as a prophet. What he is doing now, he is a priest. Oh, very soon, he's going to come as king and set up his kingdom, king of kings and lord of lords. But he's advocating for us now. He's our defender. He's defending us from Satan's lethal attacks before the Father. He sits on the right hand of God. Let me just read you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says this, or 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, since we, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and we know those witnesses are the, the faithful in chapter 11, the faith chapter. Those are the witnesses that surround us. They've gone before us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, who's to, who's to lay it aside? Let us lay it aside. Let us lay it aside, every weight and sin that easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. Every one of us has a race given for us, specifically. We, I can't run your race, you can't run my race. We all have our own race to run. Looking on the Jesus, but all of us are to look on the Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Isn't that an amazing thing? Because of what it produced. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is he doing at the right hand of the throne of God? He is interceding for us. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. He is our defender. That is his position right now. Jesus, our advocate, is in heaven advocating for us. The Holy Spirit is the advocate that we have here now, speaking to us on how to walk this thing out and who we really are in Christ. That's a big deal. Verse 2, Jesus, our number one defender, his death appeases the wrath of God. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Now let that just resonate in your minds for just a second. The whole world. The whole world. More on that in just a second. Now the word propitiation or atonement is the Greek word halasimos. Now I suggest you memorize this. I suggest you memorize an acceptable sacrifice appeasing the wrath of God. Jesus Christ was the only acceptable sacrifice appeasing the wrath of God, the only one. Remember, God cannot look on sin, can't be in the presence of sin, is angry with sin, we're separated from God because of sin, the wrath of God. William Barclay says this, only Jesus can disinfect man from the taint of sin and thereby fit him again to enter into fellowship with God. The disinfectant is the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the disinfectant. Now, only Jesus, please hear this, only Jesus' sacrifice takes away sin. No one else can do this. No other world belief system can do it. No Hindu belief system, no Muslim belief system. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we're cleansed. It disinfects us from sin. Now, I want to review this with you. I've been through this with you several times, so if you've been with me for a while, you will know that this is a review. 
But very briefly, this is what happened. So why is it only Jesus who can cleanse from sin? That is the question. The whole world asks that question. The whole world thinks we're narrow, that we're bigoted, that we're intolerant of other people. No, we're not intolerant of other people. We're just, we're just saying that Jesus told us himself that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except by me. Salvation is found in no other, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. There's one way. So it all starts with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the only sinless humans to live on earth. And they were given dominion over planet earth. Let me just read to you Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Therefore God said, let us make man in our image. Notice the Godhead is speaking here, a plurality, a plurality in the Godhead, not a singularity, a plurality. Us make God in our image according to our likeness, and let them, Adam and Eve, co-rulers, at least before the fall, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now verse 28, he just kind of repeats this. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the stuff I've just read. Dominion is the word radah in Hebrew. Radah, R-A-D-A-H. And it means authority to rule, to reign as God's representative. Adam and Eve were to reign as God's representative. There's a word for that. Adam and Eve were given theocratic rule over the earth, simply meaning that they were representing God on the earth. They were God's representative rulers on the earth. Adam and Eve were sinless. Again, they were the only ones made in the perfect image of God. Sinless. And then the test came. One test question. And he gave them the answer. This isn't, this isn't a sneaky test. This, you can get an A on this test, Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm telling you not to do that, and you get an A. Okay? What did they happen? They, they eat. Satan conspires to steal rulership from Adam and Eve. How? He tempts with sin. And Adam and Eve fall. And what, when you say the fall of man, you know what that means? It is the fall from a sinless state into a sinful state. From communion with God that is perfect to separation from God which is painful, that they experienced. The consequence of sin is this. Satan gains through deception the rule of earth. Make no qualms about this. Satan is called the god of this age. John 12, 31, Jesus says this, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 14, 30, Jesus says, For the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing on me. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this, The god of this age, small g, Speaking of Satan, this age, this aeon, this time, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ. It takes God's miracle for us to be able to see the light of the gospel of Christ. We don't come into this thing on our own. It's God working on us. God working on us. Consequence of sin. Adam and Eve experience death and separation. Satan gains control of earth. The second consequence is Adam and Eve lose immortality and experience death, both physical and spiritual. As mankind's representative, Adam's sin and death consequence is passed on to all humanity. That's Romans 5.12. All are born in a state of sin and trespasses. 
separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, 1. God's law requires, now hear this, God's law requires the next of kin to redeem what the family member lost. The problem is none of Adam's offspring, none of his sons are sinless. It requires a sinless person to, to buy back what has been lost. No angel, no great man, no created being can do this. Only the Son of God can do this. And how can it be done? Well, we need the blood of a sinless son. The sins of the fathers are on the son, Exodus 20, verse 5. But hear this. A woman could give birth to a sinless man because sin is passed on to the sons, from the fathers to the sons of the offspring. A virgin birth is needed. Now, how often is the virgin birth impugned? Frequently. That's impossible. It can't happen. You're right. That's why we call it a miracle. We call it a miracle. A miracle is something God can do. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The last Adam, Jesus, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15.45, as Adam's kinsman redeemer, Jesus paid the redemptive price, the purchase price for humanity. He paid the purchase price for sin and redeemed Adam's lost property, planet Earth, and all of its inhabitants, all of humanity. That is a big deal. It goes on. Please note this. When we're talking about the atonement, you know, you know the acceptable sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of God, the atonement, Jesus' death in our place, the atonement. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. That's called a universal atonement, meaning he died for everyone, the world, the cosmos. Universal atonement, making all mankind savable. You have to be careful with this because many people believe in something called universalism. Universalism is this, that all people are going to be saved. There is no hell. There is no separation from God. And all of us are going to make it. Every world religion is going to make it. Every atheist is going to make it. Every agnostic is going to make it. Every all, everybody's going to make it. And the Bible says absolutely, unequivocally, wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. No, no, no. But you must realize that Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but only effective or efficacious for those who believe and put their trust in him and receive the free gift of salvation. And Scripture warns extensively, extensively about hell. Do everything that you can. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. It was not created for humanity. God provided a way out for humanity with his son. He provided a lifesaver. Look, at hell is an, is an eternal, awful place. It's, it, it's described as this. It's where the worm doesn't die. It's unquenchable fire, everlasting contempt, the eternal fire. Matthew calls it the eternal punishment and eternal separation from God. Uh, Jude says it's the punishment of eternal fire. Jude 13 says it's the blackest darkness. The smoke of their torment rises forever. This is a bad place. Do everything that you can. God doesn't want people to go there. He's provided a rescue for humanity. All we have to do is take the rescue. Here's the lifesaver. You're drowning. You're going under for the last time. And here's the lifesaver. And the people go, I don't want that lifesaver. 
It's too round. It's too big. It's too little. It doesn't fit me perfectly. I'm refusing it. Going under for the last time. Oh, no. God has provided a provision. God gave his best. Jesus' death in our place appeases the wrath of God. Grab on to the lifesaver. Grab on to the lifesaver. Conclusion, Jesus is our number one defender. Jesus is our number one defender. He is, he is not our accuser. That's Satan's game. Whenever you feel accusations or condemnation, that is not God. God does convict. You can have a lot of pressure put on you to be brought back to God, but he never says you're no good. I don't want you. You've did this too many times. And never does God do that, ever. Now, scriptures also do this. When you think about his, our defender, scriptures portray the Lord our God as our shield, our defense, our protector, our refuge. He who is our shield and hiding place is our defender, is our defender. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, is the great defender of our souls. He is our advocate. And never forget this. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. He is encouraging you. Walk in his way. Follow him. Don't go down your own path. That's a bad road to go down. He has encouraged you, don't go down that road. You will be hurt down that road constantly. But listen to this. Our world is not a friend to Christians. Do you realize that? I mean, we can at least agree on that, okay? Oftentimes, we are slandered and silenced. Keep your Jesus to yourself. That is almost the chant of the world that we're living in. Know this. Like Stephen, when he was stoned, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you when the devil is using all of his weapons against you. When the lies and false accusations come against you. When the lies are propagated against you. Jesus sees you. We have an advocate in heaven who knows our sorrows and he is touched by what touches us. You know why? Jesus was here. He was in every way tempted like us, but was without sin. He knows what we're going through. Jesus knows the Son of God will never desert his own. Isn't that good news? He will never desert his own. Hebrews 13.5 says, God says, I will never, ever, ever, five times. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, it's five times. Never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. How much emphasis is that? Our God is for us. He will protect and defend us. He will protect and defend us. And aren't you glad Jesus is our number one defender? Aren't you glad of that? John 8, 36. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Innocent of all charges, pardoned. Isn't that, a, isn't that just a wonderful sense? Pardoned. Pardoned. Paid in full. Jesus just putting his arm around you. Paid in full. I paid your debt. And all you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I receive your payment. But oh, no. Oh, no. So many people say, I don't want that payment. I'll give my own payment. I'll do it my way. No, Jesus is our number one defender. 
And I am ecstatic about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Lord, I know that uh, you do your work. The Holy Spirit does his work in the minds and hearts of people. I pray, Father, that you will open our spiritual eyes and ears. This is a special time that you are dealing with us. Lord, some of us have chosen to walk in sin. We're believers. We're walking in sin. But our lives are miserable. We're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, the fullness of the Lord. For those people, I pray right now that they will confess their sins and that you are faithful and just to forgive us their sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's your promise. Make the relationship right. Get back in relationship. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, he's not their defender. He cannot defend you. I ask now, Father, that you would speak to their hearts. Say how wonderfully... It is that they would come into your family. You desperately want them to come into your family. All they have to do is say yes to Jesus, to receive the pardon that he gives that is available to all people, but we must grasp onto it. We must grasp onto the lifesaver of Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, do your work right now. May no one leave this place today not knowing, not knowing, that they are part of the family of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What a great deal. You do it all, and we just come along and say, thank you, Jesus. I take the free gift that you offer. I pray that happens today to someone in this room. Thank you for this time to study your word, the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.